was to relate us to each other. And so we kind of saw that play out in King David's life and his pursuit of Mephibosheth, that God is a pursuer, right? Our God is a pursuing God. Our God is not stoically sitting on some throne far, far away waiting for you to come find him. Remember the bumper sticker years ago? You know, I found God. Couldn't have been farther from the truth. (laughs) You were found by him. He's a pursuing God. And you and I are made in his image to live a life like he lives. So therefore we are to be pursuing people. And so there's Mephibosheths in the world that we live in. And there's people, and we're going to see today, that are straying. So I, I, don't, I don't want any of us to get off the hook that what we're doing in creating a place of fellowship where God's people can relate and share life together is in every person call, mandate, and responsibility. So congratulations for everybody who's managed to get yourself registered. Now please turn your attention to others. And especially because of what we're going to learn today in the realm of fellowship. So we're continuing. This is part four of Fellowship 101. Do I have my cool graphic up here? We're writing on the chalkboard today. Eric taught me how to download fonts so I can, I can come up with, there we go, Fellowship 101. I improved my chalkboard just a little bit there. Um, I, you know, as I began to, actually this, this message today was not in the original thought pool for this series, but I, I just felt compelled by the Lord in the last couple of weeks to include it and then compelled to advertise on the front end something that, you know, happens in messages, but I just don't always feature it. So I'm going to feature this up front. You are about to be corrected. Okay. Everybody cool with that? Because I, I know we're not always cool with that, right? But, you know, if we read the Bible, you know, the Bible advertises itself this way, that all scripture is inspired by God. It's God's revelation and it's profitable, right? So there's gain involved in reading it, receiving it. Profitable for teaching, we like that. For reproof, don't know if we like that. For correction and for training in righteousness. So the Bible is intended to correct us. It's part of what it intends to do. But, but correction has fallen on some hard times these days. You know, it's almost, it doesn't feel right to correct other people. It doesn't feel like when, when we're being corrected. You know, years ago, I don't think we had the gauntlet to run through. It almost feels like today, if you're a preacher or you're somebody taking a position and you're going to correct something efficiently, it almost feels like I got to have a special permit to do it. You know, like a license to hunt alligators. You know, you can listen, you can only correct so many times. Here's your license, but you can only correct every once in a while carefully because, you know, people don't really like to be corrected. Right? But we, we live in a world and we live in churches that are desperately needing to be corrected. They, they needing to be fixed. Right? Did you follow the news this week? Right? The news was full of items that, that are just interesting to consider. Right? So just consider them with me. Right? You, there's no way you avoided coming in contact with some headlines that had to do with uh, Miley Cyrus' pornographic dance on the MTV Music Awards. Right? There's no way that if you saw the news anywhere, somehow, that came up. All right, question. Was that out of bounds? You don't have to participate because the questions get harder as we move along. So (laughs) you just think theoretically with me here because the next one's worse than that one by far. Uh, All right. So there's a question about what that was and whether it was out of bounds or not. Uh, What about this? It seems as though a lot of Christians spent time watching the MTV Music Awards on television that gave a platform to her and another guy to do what they did. But it also featured lots and lots of music videos and songs that sing about equally as horrible stuff. And yet lots of Christians watched that. Was that out of bounds? What about the news headline that Walmart, you know, little Walmart, started off little, 
little guy in Arkansas, little country backwoods man, starts kind of family-run business that grows up into be the biggest corporation that we know of. Walmart's decided that they are going to extend benefits to same-sex couples, acknowledge marriage between same-sex couples and the extension of benefits. Is, is that out of bounds? Now, don't, <laughs> you can stop answering me. Just trying to get you to think here because all this gets uncomfortable. So <laughs> I'm warning. I'm not like Peter. Peter just lets you go ahead and stick your head out and get it cut off. Uh, I'm letting you know <laughs> you're, you're not going to want to answer these questions the whole way. Um, a California, this is, this is disturbing, a California court in the, in the last week upheld a law that prohibits counselors and therapists from giving to homosexuals what they call conversion therapy, where they are being taught that they can turn straight. California courts will not allow you to give that counsel any longer to people. Is that out of bounds? We're in New Orleans on Labor Day weekend. The Southern Decadence Festival is taking place in our city as it does every year. Is that out of bounds? All right, now listen. In, in this world, because I'm backing us into this theme of correction, um, if, if we're going to say anything is out of bounds, then immediately we just said that there are boundaries. Right? For anything that we just discussed or anything in human existence to get addressed as being inappropriate, wrong somehow, needing to be corrected, well, we're saying that there are boundaries and some of this stuff is out of bounds. So then the question has to follow, who draws the boundary lines? Who gets to draw the boundary lines. Who determines where they fall? Should it be here? Should it be here? You draw it way over there. All this stuff is in bounds. Or if you draw it over here, all that stuff is out of bounds now. If it's in bounds, it doesn't need to be corrected. It's only when it's out of bounds that it needs to be corrected. So who draws the boundary lines? Let me ask it this way. Who owns the rights to drawing the boundary lines? Right? If you watch football games, there's widths and dimensions to the field. Um, nobody shows up at an individual stadium to discover, oh my gosh, this field is round. <laughs> Boy, they play some different ball here. Right? Every, somebody's got the rights to draw the boundary line, and every team doesn't have the rights to mess with that. Right? So the rights are located in a certain address, a certain person. Now, if you want to, I'll just complicate this. If you want to make the rights located in man, because ultimately, there's only two places that you can put this, God or man. If you want to put the rights in man's responsibility, all right, well, then who of men has the rights to draw the boundary lines? Is it the majority of men? It kind of used to be that. But now we've had this shift in our culture to where it's no longer the majority of men who set the boundary lines. It's every individual who gets to set the boundary lines, and he gets to set it out of his own desires. Or does God get to draw the boundary lines. Now, I, I, I tend to, to come down here, and this is how I would greet as a person of faith addressing issues of right and wrong in our world. I believe that our entire civilization, humanity, and the universe originate in a creator. And I believe because he is the creator, inherently he and he alone has the rights to draw the boundary. So when we open up the Bible, we, we find something here. Matter of fact, it's interesting. We, we sang something. We sang this song, Glorious. All right. It's important that you catch that song, right? Glorious. God, you are glorious. All right. So a glorious God created the universe. And he had a reason for creating it. The reason for creating it was to display his glory. He's an artist. He created canvas and started using paint and painted pictures of glory on it. That's what his creation is. So what is this creation? What is humanity? What is everything that makes up our lives? What is all the things that we experience relationally, societally? 
Well, they were created by a God who did them so that they could depict his glory. That's why they exist. And so then God steps in and he reveals, well, what does my glory look like when it gets set inside a human container? And we get something like the Ten Commandments out of that. It looks like human beings who put God in the highest place and worship him and worship him alone. And then we back down all the the verses, the, the commands that have to do with relating to each other. All right, we live in a culture today that, that loves love, doesn't it? Let's be loving. Let's love one another. Uh, but the God of the universe who already created everything, he already defined love and he stuck it inside the Ten Commandments. You know the do's and the don'ts thing? The thing that says that you're wrong sometimes? When Jesus explained the law, do you know that he explained it using the word love? When Jesus summed up the law, you remember how he summed up the law? He said, thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That is the law. And then it just breaks out in these particular areas. So even as Christians, sometimes we get this weird idea about the law. We almost look back at the Old Testament in a way that it's really not there. And we say, well, because we read Galatians, and Galatians says that the law is a tutor to lead us to Christ, and, and, and no one can come to God through the law. And so we take a couple of those ideas and we install them in the ideas of the law. We step back in the Old Testament and we say, well, you know what happened in Mount Sinai? God set up this system that no one can keep anyway, just to show everybody that they can't keep it. That's what it is. And then then we speak bad about it and we act like, well, you know, we're not under the law. The law, the law. Uh, Has anybody ever stopped to realize that the law is a human containerized display of the glory of God? That's, that's where it comes from. It's God saying, uh, this is what glorious looks like in a human being. It looks like somebody who puts me above everything else in this world and has no other idols before me. It, it, it looks like someone who honors the Sabbath because I've given it to them as a point of rest. It looks, like, it looks like a human being who doesn't commit adultery. It looks like a human being who doesn't murder. That's what glorious looks like. Now, what happens when you decide that you want to murder, you want to commit adultery? Well, then you are wrong and you need to be corrected. And this is not complicated. I know we've made it very, very weird, very awkward, very complicated. When you read the scriptures and you, you visit, because we're going to visit with the prophets today, right? And I call this the prophets weigh in on fellowship. Fellowship? Really? The prophets have more serious things to talk about. Uh, Well, we're going to find out today that, and this is just one place amongst many, where the prophets thought fellowship was important enough to address it. And fellowship was important enough to correct how people were doing it. And so the, the prophets play this unique role, right? And when you hear the New Testament speak about the Old Testament, you'll hear this terminology. The Old Testament is what? The law and the prophets, right? That's how the Old Testament is spoken of. So in the law, you have the revealing of the God who created everything, the history of God with his people, his calling them to himself, his display of who he is, his codifying human behavior in relation to what is glorious. And then you have the prophets. So you have the law and the prophets. Well, what, what are, what's the role of the prophets here, right? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, you, know, you go through all the rest of the minor prophets after Daniel. Well, I think I'd say the prophets exist, you know, keeping our boundary lines in mind. The prophets are like the referees in the Old Testament. The game's already been created. The, the boundary lines are drawn. The way to display the glorious God has already been given to humanity and revealed. And then there's these guys called the prophets, and they wear striped suits, and they stand on the field. And when somebody steps out of bounds, they throw a flag. When somebody breaks, they throw a flag. How many guys like referees? That's that's a funny thing to answer. Because at the end of a game, usually, I I don't like the referees. I don't know what it is. You know, the referees, they usually have to be carted off by police escort and stuff. It's like most people don't end the game cheering the referees. Yeah, baby, zebras. Woo, awesome job. They just did something during the game that really bugged us. But there are moments when we love the referees, right? Like, uh, like when Les Miles 
manages his clock at the end of the University of Tennessee game. Y'all remember this game? You know, less, less, not paying attention to the time real well, less, uh, which I was panicking last night. He did it again. Uh, and here you go, LSU, and of course there was a bad snap, and the ball went over. He wasn't looking. Ball went past the quarterback. And that would have ended the game, except that those guys in the stripes threw a flag on the play because the University of Tennessee had 13 men on the field. I guess if you're going to play defense, that's the way to do it, huh? But somebody besides LSU and Tennessee and all the people in the stands set the rules. You can only play football with 11 people on the field. So if you put 13 on, you're wrong. And the other team got the ball back. And, of course, you know what happened. We scored a touchdown, and LSU won the game. Now, in that moment, I like the referees. (laughs) Right? All right, so here, giving something away about ourselves. We only like the referees, and we might only like the prophets, when they step in and correct something that we see the good of it. As soon as I can see that, oh, that's, that's a good thing that that gets corrected. Now I might see it's okay. The referees aren't bad guys. They're, they're doing their job. We need them. Right? Well, that's, that's who the prophets are in the Old Testament. They're the guys stepping in to throw a flag. But there's a problem because most people don't read the prophets. If we're real honest, if I went and took a survey in this room, not many are reading, not many are reading the Bible, much less reading the prophets. Listen, this is from the Religious News Service, recent poll. They said more than half of Americans think the Bible has too little influence on a culture they see in moral decline. All right, so culture is getting more and more and more out of bounds, if you will. Yet only one in five Americans read the Bible on a regular basis, according to a new survey. If they do read it, The majority only read their Bibles four times a year or less. Only 26% of Americans said they read the Bible on a regular basis. All right, let's, let's be real here. If you're reading the Bible four times a year, where in the Bible do you think you're spending your time? Maybe you're reading the Gospels, maybe. More than likely, you're reading the Psalms. Maybe a proverb a day, maybe a familiar passage from an epistle. But I could be, if I were a gambling man, I'm pretty sure I could make some serious bucks that you ain't hanging out in the heart of Isaiah, pulling out Ezekiel, reading from Jeremiah or Daniel. Maybe Daniel because you're curious about how it connects to Revelation and the fireworks at the end of time. But you just, you're not reading that. You're reading devotionally, right? You're reading selectively, and the human condition wants to be comforted, encouraged. Right? Everybody wants that, and I'm going to tell you, that's a good thing. So I, I don't want to open the Bible and, and get blasted by somebody. I want to open the Bible where there's yellow flags flying all over the place. Right? Who wants to read the prophets? Well, you know, if you're going to stand, though, and say that we live in a world of moral decay where things continually just continue to get out of bounds and out of bounds and out of bounds and out of bounds, someone needs to tell me you are out of bounds. You can't play the game over here. Well, that's true for the world. But, you know, actually, you know who the prophets were speaking to in the Old Testament? A little bit. They spoke to the world a little bit. But for the most part, they spoke to the people of God who had been given the law. So there's a sense in which we need to hear from the prophets. Right? Turn with me to Ezekiel 33, because we're going to look in Ezekiel 34 about what Ezekiel had to say to the people of God about fellowship. But look first in Ezekiel 33, so we can get some kind of idea about what God had in mind in giving prophets to us. Is it a bad thing that there are prophets? Ezekiel 33 You're approximately 600 years before Christ. Verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, If I bring the sword upon a land, and the people of the land take a man from among them and make him their watchman, and if he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people... 
Then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. And then look what, in verse 7, God says to Ezekiel, So you, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. Right, so you are that watchman. Right? They borrowed the imagery of their time in which a watchman watched what was going on and gave warning to the people, and the people took that serious and prepared themselves so that they didn't get overtaken by an enemy. And God says, you are the watchman, Ezekiel. That's your role amongst my people. And look at the benefit of heeding these corrections and these warnings that are in Scripture. If he had taken warning, if he had received the correction, he would have saved his life. There are some of us who are living in categories of our life that we need to be corrected. And that's not a bad thing. Don't, Don't do this. Don't make a pastor or a preacher or the Bible or a friend swim through some river of obstacles when correction needs to happen. We do that. We we bring correction and then we hear what that feels like and then we go back to that person with, you know, I just you know, that just makes me feel condemned. I just feel so condemned. It's like just start throwing barrels into the water. Here, swim against that. Here, you want to come correct me? Swim against that. How about this? So now you're a legalist and, and uh, you're judgmental. You're, I mean, you're all these things in the process of correcting. But there's a reality that some of us, to save our lives from continuing to play the game out of bounds, need to be corrected. And the Bible's not apologizing for that. Have you ever looked at the section of the prophets and see how thick it is? It's an enormous part of the Bible. And for the most part, they spend most of their time fixing stuff. They are referees. Now, there's, there are some plays when no flag goes down. They just set the ball up and go ahead for the next play. There's a few chapters like that. But for the most part, they're throwing flags all over the place. Because the people of God are out of bounds. They are not, what we sang earlier, glorious. And God is rescuing them from not being glorious. So what about when we come to this realm of fellowship? All right, turn over there just to Ezekiel 34. What do the prophets sound like when they weigh in on fellowship? This body of relationships that are called by God's name, a bunch of people who are God's who are relating to one another, walking with each other. This Old Testament picture is going to be the picture of a sheep and shepherd. Right, so flocks. This is, this is the imagery that's being used here. So look in chapter 34, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Right, Correct the shepherds, Ezekiel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. All right, so the first order of business in correction for the people of God is to correct the leaders. And that's, that's probably normal throughout scripture. Uh, First, the order of business is when things get out of order, address the leaders. And that's who's getting addressed here. Shepherds here uh, would most specifically include kings, those who are in authority as kings over the people of God. But if you read throughout the prophets, shepherds often include priests and prophets as well. So I think we could blend this into the categories. Where Where there are leaders, 
God addresses them. When there's deficiency in fellowship, God addresses those men and those leaders and says, what, what, what are you doing? And what's your motive behind what you're doing? Are you out of bounds in the way in which you're leading? And then look in verse four here, this very, very insightful verse right here. This is what he's upset about. God is upset about something. Something's out of bounds and he wants it to be put right. He says, the weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled them. And this is, this is insightful because this is the reason, come back to this at the end, this is the reason why God is correcting. Right? The reason why God is correcting is, is not because shepherds are doing the wrong thing. No, that's, that's part of the cause of the effect. God is saying, I look at my people and this is what's missing. This is the environment I had intended for my flock to have amongst itself. This is what life is supposed to feel like. If this is a gathering of my people and these things don't exist, well, Ezekiel, throw a flag down because the game is being played out of bounds and something needs to be corrected. All right, let me, let me just go into this for a second and tell you this. You've heard us promoting small groups and small group ministry and then approaching this. Listen, let me tell you what we're not seeking to do. Uh, We're not writing a book. We're not trying to create some program that we can say how many people are enrolled in this particular program of the church. Uh, Well, our motive is not to be successful in a program that's got numbers and names stuck in a bunch of columns. This is what is successful in this category. When the gathering of God's people looks like this verse, this is what we're after. But if we, if we don't ever come together, we definitely won't experience this, all right? So you got to create small groups and ministry opportunities for this to exist. But think with me for a second here. Look at the description. There are weak people, sick people, injured people, strayed and lost people that get mentioned in this verse. And this is very informing. This is where I didn't want you to speak too loudly a little bit earlier. Because you know who's sitting in this room with us? Injured people? There are injured people here this morning. Injured by abuse in their life. There's some people that they could just tell you their story. You'd be amazed at what they've had to put up with, what they've had to try and pull it together. People who have been injured by neglect. And people in this room who raise themselves don't have any idea what it's like to have a parental hand guiding them through the difficult years of life. They had to do it themselves. You have people here who've had to walk through adultery. They've had to try to put a relationship back together, try to figure out what to do after adultery occurred. People who have been divorced and injured by that. Maybe that was years ago. Maybe it was a long time ago but you, you root your life together with another person and then you pull it apart and it injures people. There are people sitting in our midst who they just don't, that one of the reasons why they may have a problem with correction is that's, that's all they ever got in their life was harsh, critical correction. And anytime somebody stands up, I mean, the Bible stands up, you avoid the prophets and you avoid messages like this because that's all you experienced was a sense of constant disapproval. Right? I, I never had a setting at home or an environment where I, I grew up and experienced life where I was affirmed or appreciated. I was just taken apart and everything about my life was told what was wrong. And I never seemed like I could ever live up to standards. And it, it just frustrated that person over and over and over again. 
the injured are here in this room. The weak, the weak are here in this room. There are people that we look at their life and they lack, they lack motivation to change, motivation to get that thing right in their life, to step up, do what needs to get done. And some of us engage that person and we just don't get them. Why don't you just stop? Good night, man. Can't you see what you're doing? Probably in many of those situations, those people want to stop more than you want them to stop. But for whatever reason, I can't explain it all. They're living in a condition where there is, there's weakness. There's weakness. They fight battles with sin in a weak way, in an unsuccessful way quite often. Right? They're, they're here. That's who makes the church up. And this is, this is a group of people that are being corrected. Because this verse is about compassion for broken people. That's what this verse is about. It's looking into the reality that people's lives are broken. People are broken. And the flock of God is a place where they can be healed, cared for, strengthened, If they stray and they wander off, they will be sought after. Listen, I'm I'm sharing this with you by starting a message talking about correction. I don't know how easy it is for you to put these two together. But I think it's important that you know something about yourself. You look up at people. What What do you see first? Wrong people? Are broken people. What's the first thing your eye sees? Oh, that person's wrong. This person's wrong. Look at their hair. What are you trying to do? Draw attention to yourself? Look at the way they dress. Oh my gosh, that is so immodest. I can't believe anybody come to church like that. Right? Is that the first thing you see is wrong? They're wrong. Their, their lifestyle is wrong. I mean, do you have any idea where that person was last night? Do you have any idea? Huh? Right? You see them. First thing, they're wrong. Those people are wrong. And so the church becomes an environment where some of this just kind of can't happen. The weak don't get strengthened. They just get told they're wrong. The injured, no sense of understanding, no sense of care about there's a reason why that person limps in their life in that category. And just because you've never experienced that and you've never tasted that yourself doesn't mean you get the right to demand that they stop being wrong in that category and get right like you are. I think we could grow a little bit in this category. Here's why we could grow in this category. And I'm not going to stop in this category that I'm about to criticize. I'm not going to stop. And churches that have stopped are wrong. And you just need to live within the tensions that the Bible corrects a lot of things. The Bible says certain things are wrong. The Bible trains us to be discerning. So you you can't decide that, well, we don't want to be that way. We want to be compassionate for the broken. So let's jettison all the convictions. Let's get rid of all the clear doctrines and mandates and absolutes that are in the Bible because that doesn't feel compassionate. You don't get to do that. But neither do you get to live on one side or the other. You don't just get to be a bunch of people who are very good at saying what's right and what's wrong. And if you come into our midst, you will find out very quickly whether you are right or whether you are wrong. Now, whether or not you're going to feel cared for in your brokenness or not, that's a whole other question. And I, was, I was reading a book by a pastor of a very large church. Um, they have a little different philosophy about how they approach some things. And I, I try to read from some different perspectives because, you know, I, I don't think we're a church that's got it all right. don't think our way is the way to do things. There are some things that make sense to us, therefore we do them. But I try to read others and, and look at what's motivating that, what insights can I gain from there. And it was interesting as I 
looked at this one particular church and how they approached people, uh, he, he referenced something that their default setting was mercy. That's what he said. When we engage people, our default setting is mercy. So he went through what that looks like and what that sounds like as they engage people's lives. And now this would be a church, I think it's got some weakness in some categories of convictions that would be nice to see them a little stronger in these categories. But they had something over here in the care for the broken world category that I think we could learn from. People are broken. And people get complicated because they're broken. People are obnoxious because they're broken. Their brokenness drives them to do stupid, awkward, weird, unacceptable stuff. And if all we're interested in is discerning the right and the wrong of it, then this becomes an environment that's very hard to see this verse have an existence in. Where people who are injured, sick, weak, wandering can find a place where they can be made whole and strengthened. 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 There's no switch in people's bodies, right? If we're going to aim at fellowship here, can everybody all get on board together here? You you don't get to pull a Bible passage out, bring it over to somebody who's broken and say, okay, read this passage. Did you read it? Okay. You read it. All right. I'm going to reach back here and I'm going to, I'm going to flip this switch and you're never going to do this again. Okay. You're done now. And then you come back a week later and you find them doing it again. And you're like, what the, You, you read the passage. I gave you the passage. The weak get strengthened. They don't get perfected instantly. They get strengthened. That's what we're after. People growing. Which means they were really, really bad off last week and they're pretty bad off this month. And don't go folding your hands at them and getting all hacked off at them because they're not completely done yet. That's that right or wrong mentality. It's like, are you right yet? Are you right yet? That's where we are with the church of being right or wrong. You're right or you're wrong. Uh, Okay, well, that's harshness. That's an atmosphere that gets created that runs these other things off. These are valuable things. These are the things that God was looking for his people to be that when he didn't find it, he said, I need to call some people to task here. I need to throw a flag on the play. Leaders need to be corrected. As a matter of fact, all the people need to be corrected as well. Look at verse five. So, since these things weren't happening, they were scattered because there was no shepherd and they became food for all the wild beasts. Now, what's the obvious concern here in this passage? Scattered sheep get eaten. That's a reality. I don't know where we got the idea, any of us, and probably many of us have practiced this. At times, we scatter from the flock, don't we? We wander off. Sometimes we huff off, you know, got our back all up, can't stand somebody did something, so we decide to wander off. I don't know. You know, it's like jumping out of a boat into a pool of alligators because you didn't like what somebody said on the boat. I mean, does does that really make sense? I'll show you. <laughs> uh, yeah, you will. You'll show me in pieces uh, soon. And this is, a, this is a reality. When God looks up at his people, he sees them as a flock. He sees them as a gathered people. That's how God sees his people. When they came to Mount Sinai, God didn't say, hey, I'd like to set up an appointment with each person individually. So just send them here one at a time. He gathered them all as a people to the foot of Mount Sinai. and He met with them all as his people. So God collects us together and then he sees us as a flock and then he turns around and says, okay, you're a flock and there are problems for getting too close to the edge or removing yourself from the flock because you live in a predatorial world and that's a fact. Whether you pay attention to it or not, right? I mean, you guys watch any of these National Geographic kind of channels, right? I mean, I watch them. As a matter of fact, if, if it's about the big cats, big cats and sharks, Right? We want to see we want to see stuff get eaten. All right, that's just a fact. So if you know if it's about butterflies nesting, you know, I'm skimming right past that one. But when I get to it and there's a big giant lion head in the TV screen, I'm like whoa, 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 whoa. Let's, let's see what happens here. 
And if you've watched two of those programs, you know the strategy. Everybody knows the strategy. Who gets eaten on those programs? I mean, as soon as the camera goes and finds a young antelope, I know, that's lunch right there. That's lunch. So the young get eaten, the stragglers get eaten, you know, the music kicks in, the narrator goes to this one antelope in the bush. And you know, dude, you should not be alone. Don't you watch these programs? You're an antelope, for goodness sake. (laughs) That's the worst place to be. You're by yourself. Everybody knows this if you've watched the program once. If you get by yourself, you're going to get eaten. If you get too close to the edge, you're more likely going to get eaten. You might not absolutely get eaten. If you're on your own, you're going to get eaten. There's there's just no way around it. If you're too close to the edge, you're more than likely going to get eaten. If you're young and immature and you decide to get too close to the edge, you're definitely going to get eaten. All right, lesson in life, right? Because God says this is the world you live in. It's a predatory world. The rules apply to you spiritually. Interesting. Genesis 4, verse 5. This, see, this is, what, this is what sin's after. If you think sin's after anything else in your life, if you sin, think sin is just neutrally going to offer you pleasure, that's what it's doing. It's neutrally offering you pleasure. Sin is never neutral about anything. Sin has an agenda. The devil has an agenda and sin has an agenda. If you let them come to life and be predators, you'll treat them differently. And the Bible describes them that way, right? Genesis 4, verse 5. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. This is biblical language for Cain was pouting. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Right? It's an interesting, interesting breakdown of sin, its behavior and what it's, what it's seeking to do. Right, Cain, Cain just had a bad experience. Cain just participated with Abel in an offering situation where Abel got approved of and Cain was disapproved of. All right, an opportunity to be corrected. Cain could get corrected, and if he would listen to the correction, he would live. But he doesn't want to listen to the correction because Cain feels sorry for himself. Cain is having a full-blown pity party and his face has fallen and he's unreasonable and he's sullen and he's withdrawn. And God comes and says, Cain, I don't, I don't know if you understand how the game gets played, dude. Sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. And it's interesting, that word desire right there, it's used elsewhere to describe how beasts are towards their prey. Also, how men are towards women. So you can kind of see what kind of heat is in this desire. Sin has a desire for you. Cain, you best be getting up and dealing with this. But Cain was having a pity party. And Cain didn't want to deal with it. And one verse later, Cain is going to go from pity to murder. In one verse. Isn't it amazing? Listen, I'm going to pick on pity because I think self-pity is a mobilizer for sin. If you're a person prone to self-pity, it feels right because you've been wronged. And you feel it and you give yourself permission to feel sorry for yourself and therefore you sit in that posture and you mobilize other sins. So it's not too far of a trek from self-pity to murder for Cain. I'm not sure where it'll take some of us, but, but here's why. Romans 6 verse 12 says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Sin has passions. Yes, it does. Sin's got a strategy. Sin has an agenda. Sin has goals and ambitions and desires. See, you thought it was neutral. You thought I was putting my foot in the pool of sin to experience its coolness. Uh, you didn't realize that that pool was like a living being that when you put your foot in it, it has an agenda of its own. Doesn't matter what your agenda was. You just thought you were going to get your feet wet. But all along, the pool had its own strategy. 
to dunk you under the water and drown you. That's how sin is described here. Titus chapter 3, verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. And so don't treat sin like it doesn't have its own agenda and it wants to take you somewhere. That's how it is. 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. All right, so this is the world that you and I live in. We're living in a place that's predatorial. And so fellowship is a means of God protecting us from the predators of sin and the roaring lion who seeks to devour any of us. Do not... Do receive correction. Do not treat fellowship like, oh, it's just fellowship. Not a big deal. Well, God is clearly saying, if you create an environment where my, my sheep get scattered, they're going to become prey. They're going to get eaten. Make sure you create an environment that gathers my people and cares for them and does that in a way that keeps them from getting eaten. Now, listen, God is, in a big way, correcting something that we've learned to t- treat as a small thing, right? If you, if you don't fellowship, I mean, it's, it's not adultery for goodness sake. It's not murder. It's not even lying. I mean, it's, what is it like a Christian parking ticket? I don't know. I hadn't been in the meeting. I hadn't fellowship lately. What, I get a ticket? It's not a felony. Uh, all right. Well, you tell me what it is. Sit down with Ezekiel and you tell me what Ezekiel has to say about fellowship. He seems to be pretty jazzed about it. He seems to be treating it like it really, really does matter. Now, there's some really great news in the midst of this passage. Look down in verse 11. God addresses his people. They're failing at being a fellowshipping group, a flock. Shepherds are failing. And then verse 11. This is that amazing gospel hope we find in Scripture. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture. And on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture. They shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. This is, this is can you just get a hold of the tension here? Because how does this start? It starts with the watchman who is appointed by God to come to God's people and correct them. That correction matters. But we learn something about the God of the universe and the nature of how he deals with us. Even though shepherds are failing, we're going to find out in a second, people were failing and sheep are vulnerable and the fellowship is broken. Even though that's true, there is still hope. Because God says, I will do what you have not done. I will do what you have failed to do. I will be this to my people. I will be faithful to shepherd them, to care for them, to go find them, to pursue them, to bring them back. I will do this. So this is why there's not a person in this room, no matter who has failed you, no matter who has failed you, parent, boss, pastors, friends, no matter who has failed you, God says, I will be a father to the fatherless. I will be a shepherd to the sheep who have failing shepherds. See, God will be that to you. You you have hope this morning. Even though everybody around you is screwing up all over the place, God is that hope. So on the one hand, I want want to hear that. Where where do I put my dependency? I want to put my dependency upon God to be to me all that he needs to be. But you do recognize the people of God are being corrected right here. Seemingly, if they're being corrected, it matters how they treat each other. This last little section addresses the more common folks. Verse 17. As for you, 
my flock? Thus says the Lord God, behold, I judge between sheep and sheep, right? Not just shepherds, but between you. Between rams and male goats. Is it not enough for you to feed on the good pasture that you must tread down with your feet the rest of your pasture? To drink of clear water that you must muddy the rest of the water with your feet? And must my sheep eat what you have trodden with your feet and drink what you have muddied with your feet? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep, between you, because you push with side and shoulder and thrust at all the weak with your horns till you have scattered them abroad. Now who is now who is God addressing? The sheep and how they treat each other. The fact that there's pasture land here, but there's a lack of care, and those who are the fat sheep are eating, benefiting, and trampling down all at the same time. There's God has provided water, but yet there's sheep that get into the water and they muddy the water and they make it to where others can't drink the water. And then there's some sheep who push and shove. And actually, the Bible says, cause scattering. People get scattered sometimes because the way we treat them, they don't want to be here. They don't want to be around Christians. This is particularly, particularly important for you to hear. If when you open your eyes and you look at people and the first thing you see is what's right and wrong about them rather than seeing what's broken about them. Because more than likely, if you're a right and wrong guy, you are one of those who pushes people out of fellowship. If you're not a broken guy, recognizing people are broken, people need to be patiently dealt with. People need to be cared for. People might need to be told they're wrong only after they've been cared for for a little while. Only after they've stopped limping so bad that they can actually stand to hear you say, oh, in addition to your severely broken leg, there's also this issue with you. Some people are just beat up all over the place and they come in and they find out from us that they're even beat up worse than they thought they were. (laughs) You think you're bad over here? (laughs) I can tell you right now, I'm just looking at you. You got this and this and this going on too. Did you know that? Uh, No. I really feel good now. And they scatter. Listen, this has to do with how we treat each other, how we come together. Whether there are unresolved conflicts. People scatter because of unresolved conflicts. We didn't do the right thing. We knew there was a conflict. We could have gone to that person. We could have gone to them in love. We could have gone in humility. We could have sought to fix the offense that took place, but we didn't want to humble ourselves. Or we didn't want to do the awkward thing. It's just awkward to go to people and try and do that kind of stuff. So we left conflicts unresolved. And all of a sudden, you just kind of stop seeing that person. Just kind of stop coming to church. I'm not saying they should have done that, but that's where people live. Gossip. And if you've been in the church long enough, at some point, some news about you is going to come back to you. Right? It kind of has run its course, and you're just trying to figure out, how does that person know about that from that person, from this person who was involved with me way over here? How did that happen? Right, that alienates. It makes people want to scatter. Impatience. Right? It's, it's amazing how, how we can have glaring weaknesses in categories A, D, and R. But doggone it, if I bump into somebody with a weakness in category B or F, they are going to hear about it. And I don't understand why that's still going on in your life and why that hasn't changed. All right, listen, some people don't think fast enough on their feet to do this to you. Just pull your file out. Oh, I don't know. Let me see here. Why don't you explain to me why this is taking so long for you? I don't have at it. Tell me. Listen, this is not an excuse for sin. We are here together to be transformed by the grace of God. We are in the process of changing. 
But please don't take the category that, you know, you naturally run fast and that, that guy's barely out of his braces and taking his first steps. And you can't understand why he can't run the 40 faster than that. I mean, what, the, what is wrong with you? I think you, lack, I think you lack desire, dude. I think you're not serious about this. I don't think you really love God. You get up and run faster than that. And at some point later, you find out the kid that was run over as a child by a car broke both legs. He just doesn't run like you. Is that all right? People are broken. They're not just wrong. They're broken. And fellowship is about seeing God care for them. You know what runs people off as well? Is, is when Christians, they don't know the difference between essential doctrines and secondary doctrines. Issues that the Bible talks about but doesn't mandate. Right? Do you know the difference? Right? Understand, forgiveness through the blood of Jesus Christ is a mandated issue. You and I have no room to disagree on that. If you're saying, hey, Keith, that's great. That's for you. That's, that's cool, man. Glad that I've got this thing over here. Okay, you are wrong, and there's nothing I can do about that except to tell you you're wrong. And then there's all kinds of other categories. Everything from how much money you got to, to uh, how the husband leads the wife versus the wife relating to the husband versus how many kids you got or don't have or how exactly you're raised. All that stuff is secondary. It's not the atonement. Please don't get up in people's business like, oh, you got to get that right. Oh, we, we need to meet. This is, and you, you, you take personal revelation that God has given you a burden for to live your life a certain way and impose it upon others. And it ends up scattering sheep. That scatters sheep. And so when I, when I look at this verse here, this is a verse that has to do with how we care for one another. What kind of atmosphere we're going to create here as a people. So we seek to fellowship with each other. All right now, Eric, you can go ahead and come. Let me, let us see. Two corrections here, but one concern in this passage. All right, there are two corrections. One has to do with the leaders being corrected. The other has to do with the sheep being corrected. But there's a reason why God is correcting these two groups. And that has to do with God's concern. All right, what is God concerned about in this passage? He's concerned about the fellowship of his people. Therefore, he corrects two groups, leaders and people. He's not just correcting. He's concerned about something. He's concerned about how they relate to each other, how they love each other, how they seek each other out, how they pursue one another, the value they place upon that, the importance that they place upon that, the carefulness that they place upon that. That's what God is correcting here. So I think I put this in your outline. This is a specific correction. I'll leave room for the Holy Spirit beyond these three statements. If I'm treating the neglect or the abuse of fellowship in the church like a parking ticket, I'm wrong. I'm just wrong. And I need to be corrected. The prophets weigh in over and over again. The Bible highlights fellowship as much more important than that. It's not a parking ticket. It's an important aspect of the Christian life. If I've helped to create a place where the injured, the weak, the sick cannot find recovery, care, and nurture, I'm wrong. And I need to be corrected. If I'm not a pursuer of the strayed and the lost and the scattered, I'm wrong. I'm just wrong, flag down on the play. And I need to be corrected. And so I advertise, this is a correction. This is a correction message. And maybe one of those three categories describes some correction for each of us. What what does one do with correction? Okay, don't, don't create an obstacle course to keep you safe from being corrected. I mean, if you got corrected, you got corrected. It's It's okay. It's normal. We're fallen human beings. And God is a perfect God. He wants things glorious, but we constantly are out of bounds. So he corrects us. Don't freak out. It's not, it's not condemnation. You're not being disowned. You're being corrected. So what do I do when I, I get corrected? 
well, if I'm being corrected, is the correction right? Do I agree with it? Well, that's what confession is in the Bible. So I agree with God. When God corrects me about something I know that I'm doing, it's not right. I just say, Lord, you are right. And I agree with you. Well, that's not completely the end of the story. Agreeing with God is a start. The next step is repentance. If I agree with God that this is wrong, well, then I need to repent, which means I need to stop doing the wrong part and start doing the right part. All right, so if, if I'm somebody who's constantly shoving people out of fellowship because of the way I am, I need to stop being the way I am. If I'm somebody here who I can't remember the last time I pursued anybody, people who just fall off the planet, they fall off the planet. I don't know where they are. Okay, well, I need to confess and agree with God that I'm, I'm not a pursuer of the lost and the straying. I, I don't do that, God, and it's wrong. And to fix that or correct it, I need to start doing something. Not stop. I'm already not doing anything. I need to start doing something. I need to go run after some people who have strayed. See, repentance, repentance is what opens the door to change. All right, so listen. Now this is week number four on fellowship, and we've looked at insights and different thoughts. We've, we've been amazed at how God has pursued us the way he pursued David, fully knowing who we would be, knowing that in the future we would need to be corrected the law and the prophets both came from God. God established the law and turned around and said, but you're going to need referees. I can tell you right now, you're going to need referees because you're going to try to change the rules. You're going to play it your way and you need to get out of bounds a lot. But I'm going to, I'm in my mercy. I'm going to send people to you, get you back in bounds so that you are glorious. Well, that's, that's what God's doing with us in fellowship. And today is very much about us heeding God, correcting us however that needs to find its way into our hearts. So let's just, you can stay seated right where you are. I just get you to bow your heads with me because I'm, I'm pretty sure we're in this message. Don't need to invite all of us forward. I just need to own, Lord, where is it that you are correcting me? Can you just go there with God for a few moments? Just you and God, just have a heart to heart. Invite the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is given to convict us of sin and unrighteousness and judgment. So, Father, would you help us? How is it that you are correcting me today? to you that you are being corrected it's because there's something about you that's not right that's awkward but it's okay you're being corrected by God he loves you agree with him confess that to him tell him right now Lord you're right Let God give you a heart from this moment forward to change. Welcome a heart of repentance. It says, Lord, I see this. I see how you feel about it. And God, I want to turn away from it now. I want to repent. I want to begin to live differently in that category. Lord, I will need your grace. I will need your power. I need you to influence me every day from here on out. Lord, my heart's desire is to do what brings you glory. So, Lord, today I turn away from neglecting fellowship. I turn away from harming fellowship. God, I turn to you in obedience to be a means of fellowship and grace and blessing to others. Lord, help us. Help us to see and appreciate that correction 
It's not always done right by people. We don't always do it right ourselves. But Lord, correction in and of itself is a good thing. It's a means of rescue. Lord, we want to be like those people that had they given heed, they would have saved their lives. Lord, would you save us from ourselves? Would you correct us where we're needing to be corrected, Lord? Would you rescue us from one more day out of bounds and place us on the ground that you promised to give us a pasture land for your people, good grazing ground provided by you, our great shepherd, restored by you. Well, that's the days ahead that we long for. In small groups, in relationships, as a church, Lord, would you make us a people that you're pleased to send to us the broken, the injured, the sick, the wounded, the wandering, the lost, the scattered. God, build a place here where those folks can come and be a part of your glorious church. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Bless you guys. Have a great week.